3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and you're in the studio with Rosie, Priya and Inez. Good morning. Morning. Good morning. Um, it is, uh, it's La Nina, folks. Um, it was nice and sunny and very sweaty up until a couple of days ago and now it's rainy again and my butt is wet from riding in without a mudguard on. To be honest, it's been, um, one of those mornings of funny, funny <laughs> accidents. I actually got up this morning, tripped over a suitcase in my house, the dog ran into the glass door and then I spilled a cup of tea and then Priya printed out our run sheets extra large. So everything's going a bit topsy-turvy, but not bad. Not bad. I mean, between those times, for the first time in a year and a half, I woke up at um, with my 5 a.m. alarm on a Thursday, saw my 5.15 alarm and was like, that can't possibly be right and changed it to 5.30. So I was almost late. Um which, you, you know, you were five minutes late, which is, I have to say, listeners, incredibly unusual. Yeah, I know. I even got yelled at by uh, by our friends at the cafe. Um, but yeah, it's uh, we've got, you know, as usual, a massive show for you. And I think um, some stuff that'll be really interesting and important to catch up on, given the events of this week. So maybe we'll jump into our rundown. Yeah. So first up, we're going to be uh, joined by Henry Regendra. Um, the Deputy President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And Henry is a teacher who then moved into organising several years ago and has recently spearheaded the campaign to highlight the acute shortage of teachers in New South Wales public schools. And he's joining us on Thursday Breakfast to discuss Tuesday's strike action and the demand of public school teachers in New South Wales. Then we'll be joined by... Andre Dow, and Andre Dow is a writer and researcher. Andre joins us to discuss Growing Up Bilingual in Australia, a new podcast that speaks to bilingual children and their parents about language, culture, and what it feels like to be multilingual in Australia. The podcast's first two episodes will be launched on the 18th of December. Very exciting. And after that, we're joined by Justin Warren, who's the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia Incorporated. And Justin is speaking with us about concerns regarding the Australian Federal Police's recent announcement about their use of massively parallel sequencing technology, which is a new uh, technology for forensic profiling of quote-unquote criminals uh, or potential criminals. Um, and Justin also gives us a wrap of current parliamentary inquiries into legislative pushes by government that risk um, impinging upon Australians' digital rights. And finally, we'll be speaking with Jamie McConaughey, Executive Officer at at NATSAL's National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, and they're joining us to discuss the national disgrace of 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and the urgent need to implement all recommendations in the Commission's report. Yeah, it's just been absolutely heartbreaking and um, enraging to hear reports of Aboriginal women uh, dying in custody in, I believe, uh, there was a recent death at the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre in um, 
in Melbourne and also in Brisbane as well. Yeah, and um, there's also information we have about a protest happening tomorrow at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. Yeah, so, you know, just um, keeping an eye on solidarity actions that are happening and, um, you know, making sure that we are speaking up about these injustices and, and not letting anybody's, um, yeah, anybody's suffering go unrecognised. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. And in headlines for today... Tuesday saw a huge day of industrial action in New South Wales as public school teachers and principals and rail and bus workers took to the streets to separate 24-hour strikes. Teachers were marching under the slogan, More Than Thanks, after 18 months of failed negotiations with the Education Department. The New South Wales Teachers Federation is calling for a 7.5 a year pay increase to address the long-term underpayment of teachers and thousands marched on New South Wales Parliament with signs demanding fairer wages and workloads. Bus drivers took action, demanding that their new employer transit systems pay workers working the same jobs the same wage, following the privatisation of some bus services and the introduction of new contracts. And rail workers were on strike against the future privatisation of rail services as well as demanding safety and hygiene standards to be maintained without the use of contractors. Unions have noted that further action is likely over the summer as disputes remained unresolved. In other industrial relations news, thousands of workers at fast food giant McDonald's have recently joined a class action suit against the company after allegations that the company failed to provide staff with their entitled paid rest breaks. The action was filed by Shine Lawyers on behalf of McDonald's employees in Australia with the support of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. It follows a federal court decision on August 13th. 31st, 2020, which found the former employee, Kiara Staines, was not permitted to take paid 10-minute breaks for shifts lasting for more, from four to nine hours. This is despite the fact that these paid breaks are protected by the law under the Fast Food Industry Award 2010 and the McDonald's Australia Enterprise Agreement 2013. Shine Lawyers Class Actions Practice Leader Vicky Antizaltis said, We are dealing with a class of vulnerable workers, mostly minors, who it appears were systematically not provided with their entitled rest breaks. Both current and former McDonald's workers who have been employed at any corporate-owned McDonald's between December 2015 and December 2021 and any franchise McDonald's between December 2017 and December 2021 are eligible and invited to register their interests with Shine Lawyers. In other news, late, late last month, the federal government confirmed a facility will be built at Nap. Bandy, 24 kilometres from Kimba in South Australia, and in its beginning, the regulatory and design processes. The Bangala people, the judicial owners, say that they will keep fighting to stop this nuclear waste dump. The Bangala people say that they've been excluded from the consultation and will now lodge an application for a judicial review of the entire project. The first hearing is expected to be in March. That could be appealed and the case could end up in the High Court and in a different political context due to upcoming state and federal elections. Thank you. 
Yeah, and that's all we've got for headlines uh, on Thursday, the 9th of December on 3CR 855 AM. But, yeah, um, it's going to be really interesting to hear more about the strike action um, that we that we discussed um, when we hear from Henry um, later in the show. And I think also very important to keep an eye on, um, you know, because there's also been a lot of attention raised by this at, at COP and also by Seed Mob around uh, the continued expansion of extractive industries in remote areas, but also keeping an eye on these nuclear waste dumping sites, uh, which Bangala people have been fighting for a long time, is really important as part of that too. Um, so now we might go to a track. This is Price I Paid by Maisha.
The second that you came, I beg for mercy, but you say it's too late. And that was Price I Paid by Maisha. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And up next, before we go into our first interview this morning, we're going to hear a little bit of a speech from COP26. Um, so you'll hear Vivian Langford introing Elizabeth Wasuti, the founder of the Green Generation Movement in Kenya. Here is Elizabeth Watuti from Kenya. She's a follower of the famous Green Belt leader, Wangari Matai. Elizabeth represents the Green Generation Initiative, and she tells us of the starvation and drought right now in Kenya. My name is Elizabeth Watuti. I am a youth climate activist from Kenya. I have done a lot of soul searching about what to say here today. I have asked myself over and over what words might move you. And then I realized that making my four minutes count does not rest solely on me. My truth will only land if you have the grace to fully listen. My story will only move you if you can open up your heart. I can urge you to act at the pace and scale necessary, but in the end, your will to act must come from deep within. I need to tell you what is happening in my home country. Right now, as we sit comfortably here in this conference center in Glasgow, over two million of my fellow Kenyans are facing climate-related starvation. In this past year, both of our rainy seasons have failed, and scientists say that it may be another 12 months before the waters return again. Meanwhile, our rivers are running dry. Our harvests are failing. Our storehouses stand empty. Our animals and people are dying. I have seen with my own eyes three young children crying at the side of a dried up river after walking 12 miles with their mother to find water. Please open your hearts. This is not only happening in Kenya. Over the past few months, there have been deadly heat waves and wildfires in Algeria and devastating floods in Uganda and Nigeria. And there is more still to come. By 2025, in just four years' time, half of the world's population will be facing water scarcity. And by the time I'm 50, the climate crisis will have displaced 86 million people in sub-Saharan Africa alone. I would like you to join me in holding a moment of compassionate silence for the billions of people who are not here with us today 
whose stories are not being heard, and whose suffering is not being felt. Please open your hearts. If you allow yourself to feel it, the heartbreak and the injustice is hard to bear. Sub-Saharan Africans are responsible for just half a percent of historical emissions. The children are responsible for none. But they are bearing the brunt. We are the adults on this earth right now. And it is our responsibility to ensure that the children have food and water. I have been doing what I can. Inspired by the great Professor Wangari Mathai, I founded the Green Generation Initiative, a tree-growing initiative that enhances food security for young Kenyans. So far, we have grown 30,000 fruit trees to maturity, providing desperately needed nutrition for thousands of children. Every day we see that when we look after the trees, they look after us. But these trees and the life-saving fruit they bear will not survive on a 2.7 degrees Celsius warmer planet. The decisions you make here will help determine whether the rains will return to our land. The decisions you make here will help determine whether the fruit trees we plant will live or perish. The decisions you make here will help determine whether children will have food and water. I believe in our human capacity to care deeply and to act collectively. I believe in our ability to do what is right if we let ourselves feel it in our hearts. So for these next two weeks, let us feel it in our hearts. The children cannot live on words and empty promises. They are waiting for you to act. Please open your hearts and then act. Thank you. And just then you heard part of a speech. Actually, I think it was the full speech, speech by Elizabeth Watuti from COP26. And now we are going to go into another track. And this one is by uh, 3CR resident local and favourite, Kutcher Edwards, and this is from his new album, Circling Time, and it's called We Sing. I hear a baby crying in the night Whispers in the wind Echoes calling out your name Rock to its core Sounds we cannot ignore Now's the time 
to reignite the flame. It's time for us to hear beyond the new frontier. Waken to a brighter dawn. Blessed by the sun, united as one. When a new child is born, we sing for love. We live for justice. We long for freedom. We dream of peace. We sing for love. We live for justice. Sing for. 
And just then you heard Kutcher Edwards, uh, a song from his album Circling Time, and that was called We Sing. And I just wanted to let listeners know that if they're looking to go out um, and about, Kutcher is playing at 5.30 on Friday the 17th of December. So that's not this Friday, but next Friday at the Brunswick Ballroom in Melbourne. And uh, listeners can get tickets by searching Kutcher Edwards um, on Mosh Ticks, and you'll be able to find tickets and all the information there. Get your Radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Hey you mob, this virus is hanging around far too long, don't you reckon? Uncle Jack Charles here, and I for one would love to be back with community. This just isn't possible without vaccinating our community. You can contact your local ACCO and they can give you the information you need to book you an appointment so you're on your way. Together we can do better. Community, unity, immunity. Hashtag Vaxed and Proud. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And, oh, my goodness, just dropped my phone if you heard that. Uh, it is 7.27 in the morning. And we just wanted to let you know about Human Rights Day, which is Friday the 10th of December. So that's tomorrow. And letting listeners know to tune in at 10.30 AM for the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2021 CD. So from the 5th to the 9th of July this year, we broadcast live from six prisons, sharing the mic with dozens of the men and women within the Victorian prison system. And we're inviting you all to tune in for the launch of this year's CDs, Beyond the Bars number 18, featuring highlights from all six broadcasts. And you can also jump online and order your own free copy of the CDs at www.3cr.org.au forward slash Beyond the Bars 2021. Thanks, Priya. Yeah, it's so exciting that there's been 18 years of Beyond the Bars CDs. That's really quite amazing. Yeah, and Kutch has been involved from the start. Yeah, so next up, we're going to be speaking with Henry Rajendra, the Deputy President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation. And Henry is a teacher who then moved into organising some years ago and has recently spearheaded the campaign to highlight the acute shortage of teachers in New South Wales public schools. And he's joining us today on Thursday breakfast to discuss Tuesday's strike action and the demands of public school teachers in New South Wales. Good morning, Henry. Welcome to Thursday breakfast. Good morning, Rosie. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. So many of our listeners are in Victoria and uh, may have heard about the strike in passing in, in New South Wales. But for those who don't know about it, could you just tell us about t- Tuesday's strike action and what teachers are calling for? Yeah, um, uh, New South Wales public school teachers uh, were directed uh, to stop work for 24 hours on Tuesday and uh, attend a rally um, outside Parliament House, New South Wales Parliament House, 
Um, we also had uh, regional rallies um, throughout New South Wales. The fundamental reasons for, for, for the strike um, is predicated on what is um, commonly experienced right across the country, and that's the shortage of teachers. Uh, it's crippling many school communities, and, uh, and New South Wales, uh, of course, um, is suffering that. And uh, what we've found... Um, through independent inquiries, indeed through the Department of Education's own information, that the fundamental reasons why we have a teacher shortage is that the, the profession is no longer attractive like it once used to be. Uh, to build that attractiveness, even the Department of Education understands that you're going to have to lift wages and you have to improve working conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you said, one of the key issues is the teacher shortage across the state and, as you rightly point out, also across the, the country as well. Um, I was reading Dan Hogan's piece in Overland and uh, I had this quote from them. The department is yet to acknowledge the direct link between the working conditions of teachers and learning outcomes for students. And this is despite spending millions of taxpayer dollars on consultancy firms like Deloitte and PricewaterhouseCoopers to solve its recruitment poverty. So I was just wondering if you could speak a bit more about the link between conditions, the teacher shortage and also the educational outcomes for students. Yeah, look, um, uh, in, in in fact, the Department of Education has drawn that link. If I could just quote from their teacher supply strategy, um, a secret briefing uh, to the government. It said that the salary ceiling and perceptions regarding career trajectory may be impeding choices to become a teacher. These are their words. It goes on to say the demands and expectations on teachers are increasing while the current rewards, pathways and learning opportunities are not providing enough incentive. The Department of Education have known this for a very long time. They've drawn the links, they've brought it to the attention of the government. What we did was, knowing that, noting that our award uh, expires at the end of this year, our award that determines the, the salary and working conditions of all teachers in New South Wales, um, we put forward a very reasonable um, proposition for a future award, and that was to increase all teacher salaries by 5% that additional 2.5% to recognise those with experience, those at the top of the pay scale, and those in promotions positions. And we also put forward that um, we've gone up to deal with workload and we've, we've put forward that uh, an additional two hours release time, preparation time for all teachers. Now, these are very reasonable um, uh, requests that we've put in the award and it was flatly rejected by the government and the Department of Education in the face of its own evidence. Um, and that's critically important to point out to, to your listeners that the state government is willfully um, working against the advice of its own Department of Education. Absolute neglect. Mm, yeah, that is, it's so concerning. I was actually wondering if you wanted to talk a bit more about um, the response from the department to yesterday, to Tuesday's strike action because I was watching yeah, some videos online of just little clips of the strike action and it was huge across the state, not just in Sydney, but um, in many towns and cities across the state. Absolutely. Um, from uh, Throughout the state, from uh, Broken Hill um, up to Mwilumba, um down to Wagga, uh, Northern Tablelands, um, Tamworth area, uh, it was it was everywhere. And whilst we did have over 15,000 teachers outside Parliament House in New South Wales, not only was there massive support from um, from our country, our rural um, public school teachers, but we also know that the impact of staffing shortages uh, hits the hardest in those rural areas. Um, uh, they do it tough, and they've been doing it tough for a very, very long time. Yes, um, it used to be traditionally that um, there was a time that the greatest impact of staffing shortages was in our heart of the staff areas, especially in rural areas, 
but now it's right across the state. We had a, um, a principal from Broker Hill um, address the rally in Macquarie, outside Parliament House in Macquarie Street, and the, 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 the gravity, the detail, the devastation in terms of staffing shortages on his school, on his students, was just met with shock and horror by those um, based in Sydney. Um, it's, it's, it's right across the state, but acutely impacts our rural areas. Yeah, I think it is so important just to um, emphasise that fact that not only is this impacting, you know, uh, the teachers who are kind of working incredibly hard um, and not being paid properly for that work and, you know, under, um, leaving the profession under the stress and all, all of those things, but it is also impacting the students and their ability to learn, um, to have the care and, uh, yeah, expertise that they need to get a proper education. Absolutely, and even the Department of Education also acknowledged in those secret um, briefings to, to to the New South Wales government that um, as a result of staffing shortages, we are then forcing teachers who are special trained in their specialist areas, whether it's maths and English, but are forced to teach outside of those specialist areas mm. due to the sh- um, shortages of teachers. Teachers want to make sure that students access the broadest curriculum possible, but when you put someone that's not trained in that particular area in front of those kids, it's obvious, and this is what the, the Department of Education um, uh, said to the state government, the outcomes uh, of those students um, will be lower. And um, now that's not rocket science. It's quite clear um, that when you put someone without those qualifications, those kids are not getting what they deserve. The Department of Education even said um, in writing to the government, if we don't address supply gaps now, we will run out of teachers in the next five years. That's devastating. But we've got a belligerent government that thinks it can just um, ignore um, the profession, um, condemn the profession. They've, they've lost the, 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 the faith and trust of the teaching service in New South Wales. Mm. Yeah, I was wondering if you could even just a little bit talk a bit more about workloads because when I was doing some reading for this interview, I was actually quite shocked. I know that teachers are overworked across the country, but um, I was quite shocked by the disparity between the hours teachers are paid for and the hours that they're actually working and the passion with which they talk about this real impact on their lives as well. It's very misleading when, when some small group uh, talk about teachers only working from nine till three and they've got this enormous amount of holidays. Well, we, we um, commissioned the independent inquiry called the Gallup Inquiry at the beginning of last year, led by the former WA Premier, uh, Jeff Gallup, uh, that investigated uh, the changed nature of teachers' work over the last 17 years. And uh, amongst the, um, the findings of that inquiry, um, one of them was... Uh, uh, that uh, they noted that teachers, on average, on average, work 55 hours a week, and, and principals well above 60 hours per week. Uh, this takes its toll not only on the well-being of teachers and principals, on our executives, but also um, is a significant factor in what we now know is a decreasing attractiveness of the profession. Um, uh, the amount of work and sometimes busy data collecting work that's been pushed from the department down the schools is taking its toll. Um, so the, the misnomer that teachers have somehow got a cruisy is, is um, unfortunate. Uh, the reality is that um, teachers work well into the night. Um, they don't have enough time during the school day or even at school to do all the work they need to do and they take it home. Uh, impacts on their families, it impacts on their um, on their health, 
um, and therefore impacts on their performance as a teacher, as a principal, as an executive member. Um, and the Department of Education continues to ignore um, these issues. They have no care uh, for the profession. Uh, all they do is to continue to pump out um, more uh, more work to schools without giving them the necessary time, and this needs to stop and, and it needs to be addressed. Yeah, um, that seemed to be a recurring theme in what teachers were saying as well, is that um, these kind of requirements to input lots of data around students, while that may be necessary or uh, may be useful, if they're not given the, the actual time to do that, it doesn't really make that much sense or isn't really possible. Um, yeah. I just wanted to ask about... Um, so obviously, like Victoria, New South Wales has also experienced extended COVID lockdowns this year. Mm. And I'm, I'm imagining that that, like here, has impacted teachers and students. And wondering whether, you know, this has been taken into account by the department or this is like an added pressure that the teachers are just, you know, completely fed up at this point. Well, uh, you, you, you. Like in Victoria and New South Wales, clearly um, throughout the country uh, where there has been lockdowns, um, uh, the challenge for schools, for teachers to pivot from um, in-class learning to remote learning. And let's remember, it's, it's not a, a simple just flick of a switch. Uh, the circumstances dependent on the, um, the needs of students and their families. Um, it's not simple to just simply go to remote learning. Uh, there were technological issues. Um, there's issues that are defined by socioeconomic um, status. Um, access to the internet, um, one computer amongst, you know, three or four children at home. Um, really, really tough circumstances. Um, <clears throat> but all our Department of Education and, and the New South Wales government has for us is just mere platitudes. Um, it's not backed up by supporting uh, provide the necessary support in the form of release time, in the form of additional teachers um, uh, to make that work when they come back uh, from remote learning uh, achievable. And um, and uh, shame on them for the way they treat the teaching profession. Can I also add um, the great pressure that the New South Wales government is failing to appreciate and address is that according to their own data in New South Wales, over the next 20 years, there'll be a 25% increase in the number of students. That's an extra 200,000 extra students. Now, we've got a teacher shortage now. It's only going to get worse. Um, our own analysis, um, when we engaged um, some independent calculations, uh, that as a minimum <clears throat> over the next 10 years, just to keep pace with the student growth, we will need an additional 11,500 teachers. The Department of Education in response came up with this teacher supply strategy where they aim, wait for it, over the next 10 years to attract 3,500 extra teachers. It ain't going to work. They even went as far as to say, don't worry, we will recruit from places like Canada and the UK, also experiencing uh, teacher shortages. But what's worse, they said, well, we'll start recruiting from other states in, in, in Australia. Uh, for example, um, uh, you know, whether it's Victoria shortages, whether it's South Australia shortages, whether it's WA shortages, but indeed in WA, as soon as uh, this announcement was made by the New South Wales government in terms of poaching from other states, WA said they're going to come to New South Wales to poach from our system. Uh, this is These are ridiculous circumstances. The, the government, the department, um, has to focus on what's necessary, and that's to address salaries. That's um, got to a stage where the teaching profession can no longer compete uh, for other uh, compete with other, compared to other um, 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 uh, forms of employment, um, other professions, and also um, address the workload issue. 
Yeah, thank you. As as someone who is actually considering studying to become a teacher, I can tell you that this all it, I already knew that the workloads and the pay wasn't very good, but it really does um make me think about that for a pause and consider, which isn't sure. which isn't a good thing. Um I just wanted to ask, you know, it looked like an absolutely massive mobilization, which was amazing to see, and I just wanted to ask you to kind of to round up how public school teachers and principals are going to keep fighting for paying conditions into the future. There's one thing you can always count on in terms of principals and teachers, um, whether it's in New South Wales or across the country, across the world. Uh, first and foremost, our kids matter. Our kids matter. Um, if not us, um, who? Uh, if not now, when? We've always prioritised the learning of our students. And as we all know, the learning conditions of our students are also our working conditions as teachers. So the fight, um, the fuel uh, for this battle is one based on the values that are so important in, deter- in, in defining what it is to be a teacher, but especially what it is to be a public school teacher. Thank you so much um, for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast, Henry. Thanks, Rosie. Just then we spoke with Henry Rajendra, the Deputy President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, um, and he was speaking with us uh, on Thursday Breakfast about Tuesday's strike action and the demands of public school teachers in New South Wales. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and it is 743 in the morning. We're going to go to another track now and this is from the incredible Barka who just put out her new album Black Matriarchy and this is the title track. I'm coming for them, more hail to black matriarchs. 
I'm the pain and the proof. The history that lays down the truth. And they couldn't walk a mile in our shoes. Tell us to go bush when they all introduce. Fuck it, we've been here for too long. Matriarchy blood, yeah, I've been built strong. Long lines deep, yeah, get me singing songs. Cause I can't forget where I came from. Parkinji country, Mongo man. Pass it to my kids, tell them it's your land. I came from the dirt, go back in red sand. There's a river, uncle, I'm proud of who I am. Creator, creator, me tough. And I'm calling out all your bluffs Say in the past, it's all in the past Well that dark past still lives in my mouth I say radical, I know the truth Couldn't kill my ancestors, I'm the proof I know I still got some screws loose But my third eye's open and I'm looking right through Looking at you, Nunku right here Gonna do what it do, so my little black seeds Ain't gonna prove shit to you Not just sent me, gone but what do 3% me, hold it down for a few This for the black matriarchs This for my sisters who lived in the dark This for my sisters who carry our past on their shoulders this is for black matriarchs, this is for all of our women, this is for all of our children, couldn't care less about the monarch, I'ma set fire to the kingdom, I'm coming for them, more hell to black matriarchs. You know, I have a culture, I am a cultured person, don't try and impress me, and don't call me a problem, I have never left my country, I am not the problem. And you've just listened to Black Matriarchy by Barker, which is an absolute powerhouse of an album and a title track, so definitely give that one a listen. Awesome. Um, and so next up, we're going to be speaking with Andre Dow. Andre is a writer and researcher and is joining us to discuss Growing Up Bilingual in Australia, a new podcast that speaks to bilingual children and their parents about language, culture, and what it feels like to be multilingual in Australia. And the podcast's first two episodes will be launched on the 18th of December. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast, Andre. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so you're joining us this morning to speak about the new podcast, Growing Up Bilingual in Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about the podcast and how it came about? Yeah, so the, the podcast came um, about through Huang Duan Nguyen, who's been um, spearheading a group called Viet Speak, which advocates for a bilingual Vietnamese program uh, in the west of Melbourne, um, and you know, kind of based on the idea that Vietnamese is one of the most commonly spoken languages at home there and the Vietnamese community there has a really rich history in the community um, but isn't sort of represented in the education system. Um, and so Huang was thinking about um, you know, a kind of creative way to promote that campaign to do some community education as well, which is when he invited Chi Vu, um, a writer and educator, and myself um, to work on a podcast. Um, and together we ended up thinking that it would be interesting and useful to speak to bilingual families and especially the children to kind of understand what it's like to be bilingual, so including the challenges and the rewards as well. Yeah, well, I, I got to listen to um, <clears throat> excuse me, a little preview of this podcast and I can say that it, it's actually just really, really beautiful to hear these kids speak. Um, in the introduction to the podcast, presenter Chivu, as you said, tells audiences, you know, that they might not understand every word of the podcast because speakers are code switching and switching languages. And um, I found this invitation to kind of be open to not understanding um, really interesting. And I was just wondering if you could speak about this. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the aims of the podcast uh, was to try to give the listener a sense of what it feels like to be 
um, bilingual or multilingual, and um, especially as a kid, um, you, know, you spend a lot of time listening and and having multiple languages kind of wash over you, and you absorb these different languages in the home uh, sort of slowly. And so we kind of wanted to give the listener a chance um, to give themselves permission, really, to to let um, those moments of my understanding wash over them. Um, but we also wanted to normalise languages other than English um, mm. and to push back against, you know, the real culture of monolingualism uh, that we have here in Australia. And um, and so we kind of consciously decided, uh, you know, look, when it is a podcast about bilingualism, when, um, when the children or the parents are speaking in Vietnamese, um, a lot of our listeners won't understand that. That, but and and that maybe that might be a bit um, uncomfortable. But we're just we're asking people to to learn to to sit with that sort of discomfort as well. Yeah, I really like that tension. Or it's not a tension. It's just like yeah, you're hearing something and you know it's it's it has meaning that you can't understand. And I, there's also moments in the podcast where. Um, the kids speaking or the presenter is talking about different, um, what do you call it, translations of the same word and things like that. So we know it kind of opens up like languages aren't, you know, fixed in their meaning. And so it's kind of, yeah, opens up a sort of interpretive possibility and just a, a sense that like, yeah, we're all coming to things without particular understandings. And that's like part of what we're, how we're thinking about this. I don't know. Just, I really enjoyed that. Um, I was also interested. So in episode one, she speaks with Trung, a nine-year-old um, who has been learning Vietnamese for about four years. And he's such an insightful kid, um, really philosophical about language and also about life. And I, I know you wouldn't want to necessarily attribute all of all of the characteristics of this child to bilingualism, but um, I was just wondering if you could reflect on the kinds of thinking, the community connections and the expressions of identity that multilingualism does open up for children. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that um, partly, you know, some of the stuff that you, you mentioned about how, how wonderful it is to listen to John and, and Mai in the second episode as well is just that, uh, you know, it it's kind of well, can often be really wonderful to actually take the time to listen to kids. But, you know, they mm-hmm. have really interesting um, and uh, important perspectives, especially, you know, when it comes to things like education, you're actually mm. asking the children um, what they think and feel is often often the last thing that happens, um, you know, especially when you're talking about higher policy or, or whatever. But, you know, yeah, I think partly part of what we're, we want to do with the podcast is say, actually, these kids have, you know, really strong and interesting opinions about this whole question of what language they should learn at school and, and, and maintaining language connections with family. Um, and I guess, yeah, in terms of what bilingualism opens up, I think what you were saying before is exactly right about, you know, um, understanding that um, a, a concept or a thing can have more than one word attached to it, can have many ways of saying it. And often I I think of a language um, as, as a world, and, and so being bi- bilingual or multilingual, um, I think of that as opening up um, for the speaker more you know, more worlds, and um, I think that was apparent with both the children that have been interviewed for the pilot. Um, and then Maya talks about watching a movie in Italian, for example, and the difference in, in feeling that she gets 
from the English version and the Italian version. And, and yeah, I think that um, certainly that's been my experience as well growing up bilingual was that um, just had sort of a um, a background understanding that you know other people there are other ways to speak and live and feel and um, and so that I think is an important part of it. The other important part I think, which both the kids really um, really emphasised, was their identity and connection to family history, um, and particularly the grandparents. So um, you know that kind of it's just a practical matter for both of them was the only way to speak to their Vietnamese grandparents was to learn the language, um, and that's um, really significant part of it too. Um, and then uh, kind of interestingly as well, both of them mentioned that they felt like learning um, Vietnamese gave them a bit of a private language or a secret language, and um, it's interesting kind of to think about, you know, why they might feel that way, um, and particularly, you know, living in um, the parts of the West that they do, where there is lots of Vietnamese around them, and yet still feeling like it's a bit of a private or secret language that might have something to do with... Um, the kind of the way that their uh, their home or or, um, or community language is maybe not officially recognised as much as it could be at school. So um, yeah, that was interesting too. Thank you so much, Andre. That's there's so much in that answer that I just want to pull out. But I I love that idea of you know actually listening to kids. Yeah, taking the time to listen to what they have to say about their own education and their own experience of language. Um, and I remember, yeah, I think Mai says in the second episode, you know, the joy that hearing Vietnamese around them actually brings the, this child. Like they can hear Vietnamese being spoken and they can understand and being part of that and yeah, I don't know, it's really beautiful. Um, it was also interesting in in both episodes hearing the parents of bilingual ch- children or bilingual parents speaking about their approach to teaching their kids lang- their language um, and they talk about lack of time or about that idea of having to think every day of trying to speak enough of the language. Um, and I know that this kind of links to the work that Viet Speak does more broadly around education, so I was just wondering how, you know, the education and social systems could maybe be set up be- to better facilitate this this kind of learning. Yeah, so the FIX working at the moment with a linguist, um, Joseph uh, Lobianco, uh, about uh, developing uh, what he calls a home and hub approach, um, which basically looks at language education as an integrated network, um, so linking formal education with informal context, which is home and the community, and so um, really building on yeah, what you heard in, in the pilot where you know, these parents are thinking all the time about how to, um, how to, how to maintain or, or to develop um, the language skills with their children. And so really the kind of home and hub approach is about finding ways to support that because it sort of recognises that you know, formal education, the school system isn't the be-all and end-all. Um, and in fact, the home is really the most important um, place to learn language if you can. So, um, which is why VietSpeak is looking at developing kind of some um, language resources and workshops um, for um, for that. Um, and uh, so, and VietSpeak's also doing some uh, community um, outreach with uh, a language symposium next year, which will 
spiel on the website, um, which is vietspeak.org, um, and of course, yeah, our, our podcast is, is launching on the 18th as well. Which is Very exciting. Um, I also wanted to ask about, we spoke with Hung a like maybe a month or two ago, about the open letter um, that you were writing to the Maribyrnong City Council um, calling for support for a bilingual early education program in that council area. And I was just wondering if you could update us on the progress of that open letter. Yes. So um, the open letter was co-signed by a really broad spectrum of the um, community leaders, educators and parents across the West and... um, I'm glad to say that it was successful. So um, in November, um, Council um, unanimously carried a motion to support um, a new Viet Bilingual Preschool Program. And um, so that program is actually going to be established from next year in Braybrook, where um, I think the study that Braybrook has, there are um, more people who speak Vietnamese at home in Braybrook than there are people who speak only English at home. So it's... um, yeah, it's it's a kind of an incredible um, step forward um, for the for the campaign and a, a real testament to Hung's um, Kwan's advocacy actually because um, he's been really spearheading that. Yeah, so um, I don't know. We'd love to celebrate wins on this show, and it, it's really great to hear that you know the council is actually listening to what the community is calling for, and yeah, as you say, actually providing a service that's really necessary so that those kids can continue um, yeah their education in Vietnamese as well as in English. And finally, I just wanted you to update listeners about where they can find this podcast. You mentioned the website, but maybe we could just say it again and um, where they can keep up with Viet Speak. Uh, so, yeah, the website is vietbilingual.org and you can find the podcast. Uh, it will be available at vietbilingual.org forward slash podcast uh, and we'll also be putting it up on all the, the main um, podcast channels as well. So, um, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to search for Growing Up Bilingual in Australia um, through all your favourite uh, podcasting places. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Thursday Breakfast, Andre. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thanks. Thank you. And that was Andre Dow, a writer and researcher, joining us to discuss Growing Up Bilingual in Australia, a new podcast that speaks to bilingual children and their parents about language, culture and what it feels like to be multilingual in Australia. And um, can I just say I highly, highly recommend listening to this podcast. It truly is beautiful to listen to these kids speak about their experience of language. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcast. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app.
I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and it is just gone 8.01 in the morning. And we are joined by Justin Warren, who's the chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia Incorporated, to talk about massively parallel sequencing technology and also a wrap of current parliamentary inquiries into a bunch of legislative pushes by government that risk uh, impinging or, or sorry, um, affecting Australians' digital rights. So, Justin, thanks so much for joining us. You are very welcome. So before we jump into the discussion, can you let listeners know a bit about the work that Electronic Frontiers Australia does? Uh, Sure. So Electronic Frontiers Australia is uh, Australia's premier uh, digital rights um, advocacy organisation. So we spend all of our time thinking about the internet and how it can make people's lives better instead of worse. Yeah, I mean, that's a a brilliant way to put it because I think there... uh, you know, especially with a lot of the inquiries that have been coming up this year, um, you know, Electronic Frontiers Australia and Digital Rights Watch, and we've had Samantha Floriani on before, have been doing so much work to actually, you know, get people involved in knowing about their digital rights, which I think can can escape people's notice quite easily if they're if they're not drawn if their attention isn't drawn to it. So, um, the Australian Federal Police recently put out a media release, and this was on Monday, announcing that they've begun utilising a new technology called Massively Parallel Sequencing, which uses forensic material to provide predictions, uh, and I'm quoting here, for visual traits of criminals from the DNA they leave at crime scenes, allowing investigators pr- to predict things like gender, biogeographical ancestry, eye colour and hair colour. And obviously, this has raised alarm amongst amongst tech ethicists and digital rights advocates. So, can you tell us a bit about why? Uh, well, I think anyone reading that just <laughs> has a sort of an instinctive reaction to why that might be a problem. Um, yeah, police are using DNA at a at a, a particular scene to then um, say that, well, you look kind of like a criminal, so we want to have a chat to you. And uh, given the historical evidence that we have for how police tend to, uh, who they choose to talk to, uh, then that it should be obvious that this is largely going to target people that police already unfairly target. And we've, we've seen that as recently as, well, the pandemic. Um, there's evidence before, certainly in Victoria, that police have unfairly targeted um, certain minority populations, um, particularly people who don't have white enough skin. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this. when I was reading this media release, I was like, hang on, isn't this just physiognomy? Um, because really, you know, I think something that's been very well emphasised by digital rights advocates is that none of these tools, none of these predictive tools operate um, outside of the context that we all live in. So, um, you know, the information you're putting in is what's going to what's going to inform the way that these tools work. Yeah, it does. I mean, this one is uh, it's probably not quite as egregious as some of the other data surveillance mm. tools that we've seen. I mean, the predictive um, predictive policing tools generally are horrendous. Um, we've seen that in New South Wales with uh, the STOMP program. 
Um, there's several other attempts at doing this where they try to predict crime, and it generally the data that goes into such a system um, is where crime was detected in the first place, which, funnily enough, is where police have gone and looked for it. Um, and we already know that there are biases in that data that go in. So these, those kinds of systems are inherently flawed. This one's a little bit trickier because it does use certain DNA-based techniques, allegedly, according to just the press release. Mm -hmm. um, so some of those things can be useful in, because we do use it in medical diagnostics uh, in order to help people with their health. This does take it to another level when they start saying that, well, we can figure out what your general ethnic background is based on your DNA and therefore what you'll probably look like. That's maybe possible, but it's still quite a broad brush. Mm -hmm. And to then further say, well, we're going to use that information in order to conduct inquiries, that, that's going too far. Um, yeah. in, in our view, and I think pretty much everybody else would share that view, that the fact that they think that the computer says you kind of look like someone who might have been a criminal at this at this scene. And by the way, these are suspects; not they haven't mm -hmm. been proven to um, to have committed a crime yet. So we suspect that you might look like what a criminal would look like. That's getting very very close to you know phrenology because you know the shape of your skull is is a means that you have criminal intent. Um, we should be using computers to advance technology, not take us back to the Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect way to put it. And I was also wondering if you could tell us a little about the sort of legislative environment that's enabled this technology to be used and um, some of the concerns about this, because I know listeners might be aware that the AFP were under public scrutiny as recently as last year after admitting to have used the facial recognition tool Clearview AI as part of operations countering child exploitation, uh, despite not having an appropriate legislative framework in place. Yes, I, I actually put in a couple of freedom of information requests to find out more about how this came about. And it became pretty clear that, well, firstly, um, the policing agencies lied to us about whether or not they were using it in the first place. And then they had to come clean when they were caught red-handed. Um, that doesn't exactly build trust. Um, secondly, they hadn't run through a proper process. This, from my perspective, my opinion is that this was a few officers freelancing on their own and trying out this thing because mates of theirs had induced them to download it and give it a try. We know that Clearview um, is very aggressive in its attempts to um, recruit people from law enforcement. In fact, it has um, suggestions. It was in the Freedom of Information information that I got back uh, that essentially says, look, part, you know, recommend your friends um, and we'll, we'll set them up um, and, you know, give it a try and show it on show how it works to your colleagues. So they're, they're actively trying to recruit additional um, law enforcement agencies. But when we don't follow a process um, of, A, selecting tools that are going to be put into a what should be a secured environment, there's a security risk there just from pure information security hygiene reasons within the police and forces. Uh, but then we have to um, deal with it and how it intersects with human rights, like the right to privacy. And that's really the biggest one that we have with all of these tools. So in, in the, uh, the DNA predictive example, this is collection of material that has been left behind, and there's some very thorny privacy issues there. On the one hand, this is essentially discarded material, so the police have a, a legal... They are legally able to collect it. But then material that does identify you is under the Australian Privacy um, 
Privacy Act, that is personally identifiable information. That's, that's sensitive information. Mm. And we have a lot of examples of these kinds of mass surveillance technologies that allow, have, that are based on a very permissive um, structure that companies hoover up huge amounts of personal information that can be used to identify us and then they sell it to other people. They just use it however they like. And people are pretty much fed up with that. And we're starting to see uh, demands that that be constrained. There's a review into the Privacy Act at the moment. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that are mooted to be, that will be changed is a very clear definition that if information can identify you, that's personal information. It doesn't matter how you collected it. It doesn't matter where you got it from. The fact that you have it and it can be used to identify a person that changes the character of that information. And I think we really need to focus on that, that we all deserve privacy and we are all innocent and we shouldn't be surveilled by police or the government or corporations as we just try to go about our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, it is... Uh it is very concerning, you know, thinking about the extent to which this data is scraped and circulated and utilized for, you know, purposes for marketing to, um, you know, to incriminating folks. So um, I was wondering if you could comment as well on government processes of consultation with community and also independent experts when it comes to introducing such significant tech surveillance apparatuses. Well, unfortunately, we've we've become quite um, used now to what we, I, I well, at least I, uh, colloquially, uh, internally call the cyber war on Christmas, because every year around this time um, we get a raft of new um, legislation drafts come out for comment, uh, where we have to write public policy submissions um, during the Christmas break. Um, Generally, we, we are given not very much time to comment on these things. Um, I was discussing with colleagues only yesterday how uh, the, the, the timelines for some things, such as there's some uh, developments under the uh, Online Privacy Act that require industry codes to be developed. Um, all of industry is essentially um, under the pump for that to say we don't... It would normally take us two years to do this, um, we are now being asked to do this in um, six months. When you have this rush to do things, then you get bad law, you get bad systems, you get bad implementations, you get flawed things that don't work to solve the problem they are allegedly attempting to solve. And what's particularly frustrating is that these aren't new issues. We've been trying to talk to governments about this for 20 years. Um, EFA is, uh, was was formed in 1994. We've been saying a lot of these things for decades. So for, the, for governments to suddenly wake up one morning and go, oh, no, um, privacy, that's a thing. We should perhaps do something about that and then try to rush, rush it through before Christmas so they can all go on Hawaii, uh, holiday to Hawaii, um, we find that really, really frustrating. We want to help them. Um, we want to have good public policy in Australia that helps people, that doesn't hurt them. But governments don't seem to want to let us help them. They, as I put it, sometimes, as a consultant, I, I know this in my, my work, sometimes people just insist on shoving beans up their nose. And there is nothing you can do about it except wait for them to decide that, actually, I have too many beans in my nose. Please help me take them out. 
I mean, I think that's a very poetic way to put it because um, as uh, as your colleagues have, have and, you know, other digital rights experts have raised online, you know, there's this whole suite of legislation that is currently under parliamentary inquiry, like the online privacy bill you mentioned, Privacy Act Review, social media, anti-trolling and electronic surveillance reform that you're meant to comment on, uh, you know, over the next couple of weeks um, up until February. And so it really speaks to this kind of overarching rationale to sort of power forward uh, with these transformations with, with very little oversight. Um, in view of wrapping up, how can listeners better appraise themselves of some of these issues around Australian government agencies pushing for these you know, more sophisticated mechanisms of tracking and surveillance and data collection? And how can people contribute to discussions about this? Um, look, we would we would love for people to learn more about this. Um, so, uh, technology journalist Still Gerian uh, has put up a list of everything that's currently on foot on his website. Uh, so, if you go, uh, he writes for ZDNet. Um, so, I recommend uh, just getting online, search for Still Gerian. Um, it's one word: S T I L G H E R I E N, and you'll be able to find that that list. It just shows you everything that's there. If there's anything on that list that you find interesting, read about it. Um, even just a little bit of knowledge is quite useful. Um, get involved. So come and listen to us at, at Digital Rights Watch or at uh, Electronic Frontiers, um, our friends at the Australian Privacy Foundation. Um, we all try to help one another because there's too much for any one of us to do by ourselves. Um, find a thing that matters to you is, is what I would caution you to do. There's too much for you to try to be good at everything. Um, I, I struggle with keeping track of it, and, you know, I'm, I'm chair of the organisation, so mm. I kind of have to. Uh, but just find something that you personally find interesting and then um, do as little as write an email to your MP, um, write a short submission to a, um, to a parliamentary inquiry if it's, it's something interesting. Mm. We, would be, we would love to help you with that. Um, I personally really enjoy it when someone sends me a copy of their submission uh, that they're about to make or that they have made to one of these inquiries. Brilliant. What we want to do is to help people get interested in something that affects them in their daily life and then assist them to do something about it themselves. We, we don't want to have to be doing everything on behalf of people. We want you to get involved and help you to help yourself. Mm. Well, fantastic, and I really encourage people to go check out the work of Electronic Frontiers Australia, Digital Rights Watch, and a bunch of amazing other digital rights advocates who are really sort of trying to raise awareness about these important issues and, you know, get us involved in those conversations. So, Justin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me on. And that was Justin Warren, chair of Electronic Frontiers Australia, who spoke to us about some concerns with the AFP's recent announcement about the use of massively parallel sequencing technology and also gave us a bit of a wrap of current parliamentary inquiries into legislative pushes that impinge upon Australians' digital rights. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. 
Huawei's helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Huawei's helpline on 1300-111-500. That's 1300-111-500. Huawei supports 3CR. A proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, you should not wonder. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we're joined by Jamie McConaughey, who's the Executive Officer of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, or NATSELS, to talk about the national disgrace of 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, and the urgent need to implement all the recommendations in the Commission's report. Jamie, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me for... um this important messaging this morning. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, Natsal's put out a media release on Monday announcing this appalling fact that 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have died in custody since 1991, where the Commission's report came out. And I just want to begin by acknowledging the humanity of each and every one of these people whose lives have been stolen. Can you tell us a little bit about how we've gotten to this point, considering there have been multiple commissions and reports in the intervening years which have also called for urgent changes that have bearing on the issue? Thank you so much. It is beyond devastating, and we must ensure that those 500 deaths were absolutely not in vain, and and they will not be because we will be pursuing um, the implementation of the recommendations. But... What we are seeing here is truly the legacy of colonisation, which has resulted in a number of devastating effects. Um, To name some family separation and systemic and general racism, um, the regulation of low-level offences are a discriminatory tool used to target and over-police our people. Um, These things contribute to our massive imprisonment and death in custody, unnecessarily exposing us uh, to police. Um, For example, public drunkenness offences, imprisonment for unpaid fines, uh, begging, vagrancy offences, mandatory sentencing. Um, All of these things and the regulation of these things is an example of an abuse of the of procedural rights of police. So to compound my statement, what the Royal Commission found back in 1991 was that the rate of my people taken into custody is overwhelmingly different from others. So what it in fact demonstrates and what this report demonstrates and what the Commission demonstrated was that for our people, the police's role as first responders is often not helpful, but it's harmful and sometimes it's even fatal. So um, what, we, what we know is that our, our, our children are overplaced and targeted. It causes lifelong damage. Um, our women are the fastest-growing prison population. Um, the statistics are, are, are horrifying, and mm-hmm. I, I could certainly um, you know, go on about that. But we, what I need to make very clear is that we've had the solutions for over 30 years, 
and the governments have not implemented the recommendations in a meeting, meaningful way, and they haven't implemented the recommendations from the Australian Law Reform Commission's Pathway to Justice Inquiry, um, the Royal Commission into Protection and Detention of Children in the Northern Territory, um, and, and many of the deaths um, in custody um, colonial investigations. So our con- people continue to die from failures to implement these um, recommendations. So a, a lot of the deaths are senseless and they're linked to recommendations made in 1991. Mm. Um, and if I, could, if, I could, if I could just um, say one more thing on that mm. note, um, the federal government relies on a, a, a 2018 review to claim it's implemented 91% of the Royal Commission recommendations over which it has a responsibility, but this is not accepted at all. Um, and a report in 2021 outlines the number of recommendations yet to be acted on. So recommendation 60, please take all possible, possible steps to eliminate violent treatment, verbal abuse, racist comments towards Aboriginal people. That is marked as completed in every state and territory federally, despite numerous recent in- incidents of this conduct exposed with camera Footage, CCTV footage, I mean, you, the, the, the footage is there. The evidence is there of what's happening in this national crisis before our eyes. Um, uh, recommendation 90, um, decriminalise the offence of public drunkenness. It been, has been implemented. Um, so uh, so in, in that review, it claimed that the recommendation 92, decriminalise the offence of public drunkenness, has been implemented. Um, even as Tanya Day was arrested for this and died in custody because of the government's failure to decriminalise that offence. I mean, that, just disgraceful. Yeah. So um, I uh, just want to make that very clear that they are spent and they are linked to recommendations made in um, 91. Exactly. I, I think, you know, it, it's just so important to underscore the fact that First of all, these you know solutions to to everything have been around um, in terms of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities knowing what is right for them, but also these recommendations have been around for thirty years, and I mean, yeah, something that I found quite uh, quite shocking that came up in the media release you put out was that Natsal's called attention to the fact that government doesn't formally track Indigenous deaths in custody. So how are these figures generated and how does this systemic failure relate to some of those recommendations in the Royal Commission? Yeah, so accurate and credible data on death in custody has been a reoccurring request from Aboriginal legal services and our communities following um, the Commission in '91. And whilst the Australian Institute of Criminology, uh, Criminology reports, um, and, uh, while it, um, which are now undertaking six um, monthly, it's a vast improvement. So um, state-based Aboriginal legal services and governments need to be advised of Indigenous deaths in custody in real time. The federal government needs to be notified within 24 hours, so there's real-time data. So currently the government does not formally conduct their own tracking of the number of Indigenous deaths in custody. It relies on figures by the AIC. So the AIC's reporting procedures mean they will never be able to provide current numbers of deaths, Mm. which is why it's crucial that the government conduct their own tracking in order to ensure policy reform so they, so, you know, reform that can save lives of our people. Mm -hmm. So, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths need to report it directly through a national body and there should be a strict national policy governing this. So 
So it's outrageous that we need to rely on outdated figures and media reporting for Aboriginal deaths in custody and figures and that to this day there's no definitive list of our people who've died in custody since 91. The government's failed us. The situation is worse now for our people than it ever was. Mm-hmm. We need um, accurate reporting on deaths in custody and that was yet again another recommendation of the Royal Commission over 30 years ago and now we've been forced to watch on as governments continue to fail to implement life-saving recommendations. Yeah, it's, it is just appalling uh, to see, you know, the, the negligence that has gone into allowing this to happen because obviously the, these are policy choices, you know, to, to ignore uh, the recommendations in these reports. Um, now, I encourage our listeners to go have a read of Natsal's policy statement last year, Black Lives Matter Always Have, Always Will, uh, because it really has quite a comprehensive breakdown of everything that needs to happen to change the situation. Um, but, Jamie, where can listeners find out a bit more about your work and support the fight of families who have lost loved ones to the carceral system? Absolutely. Um, have a look on our Natsal's website, um, our Natsals are on Twitter, we have a Facebook, we have an Instagram and many of our members, the Aboriginal Legal Services, have social channels as well. Um, most importantly, and I want to highlight whilst I'm here, the voices of the family and whose uh, voices of the families and their um, whose loved ones have died in custody, their voice needs to be platformed and we um, that's, that is a priority for us here at Natsals because no family should ever happen, have to labour through the through uh, their grief um, to and experience the pain that they have felt. So um, it's no means an exhausted list, but we do want to publicly acknowledge the tireless work of April Day and her family, uh, Latoya Rule and their campaign to ban Spithoods, the family of Arnie Sherry, David Dungai. Um, I encourage the listeners to please have a, a look at April Day's website, Darjeeling Foundation, which contains... Um, many, uh, lots of information Mm. and ideas about how people can contribute to um, and and join us in campaigning uh, for the families Mm. and for the implementation of the recommendations. Yeah, thank you so much, Jamie, and yeah, really encourage listeners to have, uh, have a look. And that was Jamie McConaughey, who's the Executive Officer of the National Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Service, or NATSALS, who spoke with us about the national disgrace of 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander deaths in custody since the Royal Commission in 1991 and the urgent need to implement all recommendations in the Commission's report. Yeah, that was... um, Thank you so much, Jamie. And we'll just do a really, really brief rundown because we have running out of time, but um, first up on today's show, we spoke with Henry Rajendra, the Deputy President of the New South Wales Teachers Federation, about Tuesday's um, statewide strike action um, demanding increased wages for public school teachers in New South Wales. Uh, and then I spoke with Andre Dow, a writer and researcher, um, talking about a new podcast, Growing Up Bilingual in Australia, and that podcast will be released on the, on the 18th of December. And then we heard from Justin Warren, who's the chair of Electronic, Electronic Frontiers Australia, about the AFP's plan to roll out massively parallel sequencing and also about some inquiries into concerns about digital rights in Australia. And finally, we heard again from Jamie McConaughey, executive officer of NatSols, who spoke with us about uh, 500 Aboriginal deaths in custody since uh, 1991 when the Royal Commission was handed down.
Yeah, and just a reminder for listeners that tomorrow is Human Rights Day and uh, at 10.30 there will be the launch of the Beyond the Bars 2021 CD. So from the 5th of uh, July to the 9th of July this year, they were broadcast by 3CR from six prisons and Beyond the Bars, this is Beyond the Bars number 18 featuring highlights from all six broadcasts. So you can get your own free copy of that CD from 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars 2021 and that's all we've got time for this morning catch you next week 3cr breakfast would like to thank the new international bookshop melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program you can find nibs in the basement of trades hall in victoria street carlton and while you're there check out radical coffee a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au